then you can start making adjustments. Can I tweak this to make that principle not true anymore? How much do I have to change the stack depth for the shape of the curve, the strategy to change? And then you start deriving new principles for each incremental step. Um, so that I think that is basically the entire entire process I took. It came. It always starts from a place of identifying what you don't know, which is a skill. I mean, maybe one of the most important skills in learning anything. It's like you. It's impossible to learn what you already think you know. Um, so just like realizing that there's an empty spot in your brain where there should be knowledge is a good place to start. Hi, it's Ranchix. The following is my conversation with Corey Mikesell. His work ethic when it comes to studying poker is second to none. He is a successful poker player and has worked with some of the top PLO players in the world, helping them uncover the finer details of the fundamental principles in Potlimit Omaha. Corey is an author of multiple books, and this time we talk about his newest one on Heads Up Potlimit Omaha. The book is very instructive and valuable. We go over some of the key concepts from it and talk about how to study the game more efficiently, regardless of which poker variant you play yourself. I'm sure you'll find lots of useful takeaways on how to improve your own approach to studies and um, how to make it more efficient and more effective. Check out the timestamps in the description. If you want to take your PLO game to the next level, I recommend Corey's book and he offered 20% discount to my audience, which is you. To claim your 20% off, enter RunCheck's 20. Make sure to spell it right. It's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S to zero. The link is in the description. It is a limited time offer, so check it out before it's too late. And now, please enjoy this conversation with Corey Mikesell. Corey, nice to see you again. And uh, thanks for making the time. Come to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, yeah. it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's it's great. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, for once, we're recording the conversation. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's going to be fun. We have an occasion as well to to talk about. Uh, you're launching your new book, releasing your new book, um, yeah. and I've seen it. I've read. Can't say I read all of it yet, but I. It's one of those that I definitely will go through. It's a wonderful piece of work. So much to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like your approach. Really like the way you dissect the information. You really dig. Uh, deeper, try to find the first principles, what's happening. And obviously, the subject of your new book is Heads Up PLO. Um, And you know what? Some things are quite eye-opening for me. Um, And I'm sure everybody who reads it, they're going to get so much value. So I just wanted to start with that and basically congratulate you on on your hard work because I can only imagine how much work it was because it's a big, big book. So maybe let's start with that. Tell me about how was it? How is it to, to write a book of this sort? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for the the kind words. Um, first of all. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the, the book, well, while the book took place, like the actual writing took place over the course of like maybe a year, the content behind it, I've been accumulating for probably four plus years at least. 
Um, I, I started playing PLO. I wrote the other um, uh, three bet pot game theory and practice book. And then that's kind of how I developed a methodology for studying the game. And then pretty quickly I realized, okay, I, I enjoy heads up more than, than I enjoy playing six max poker. And I felt like, okay, the action's pretty good. Um, there's, there are enough, there's enough games going on that you can really try to play this for a living and, um, really try to reach an elite level, which was what I was aspiring to. Um, so I had this approach of, of taking the Munker simulations, putting them into a graphical form where I could reference them and most importantly, visualize the entire strategy and from there, imagine how different parts of my range want to change and adapt to specific opponents. Um, and so I started making these in my spare time, like one or two every night. And each one would take like an hour. So it'd be a long, long grind. But it um, very, I, I saw a very quick improvement in my understanding especially when it came to approaching different stack sizes and like different goals that we're trying to achieve at various SPRs. And so from there, I was thinking, okay, well, how much work would it be to create a database in heads up that covers every single line? And obviously I can't have every board texture, but if you have enough different board textures, just like a subset of flops that you would use in Pio, you're going to be able to cover the spectrum of the game and then abstract like overarching ideas from that. So I started like filling out a, this heads up database over the course of years um, with these charts. And then I would go and reference and say like, okay, I know... I know what the C-bet at 40 big blind heads up looks like. How is that different from a C-bet at 100 big blinds? And then I would go look at these charts, compare specific hand combos and see, oh, at SPR6, I don't want to C-bet the nut flush draw at all. Um, whereas at SPR16, which is like 100 big blinds, I want to C-bet it 50, 60% of the time. Mm -hmm. So understanding like why, why the hell would you ever not want to see that the not flush draw? Um, and then having these deep realizations, um, that was the process for learning the game. And then I just did that for every spot, for every stack size, three bet pots. Right now, this database that I have is like around 2000 of these individual charts. And from that, I started doing work with um, with a high stakes player, fifty one hundred crusher on stars, um, and working with him, I started writing things out in not really a book form yet, but in like a little pamphlet form where I would do a deep dive on each specific spot, like playing turn after the flop check raise. Um, and then I did that, I did enough of that work, um, with him that I just had all of this material and all of these heuristics and like, okay, this is like perfect, 
book nuggets of information to to put in a book form yeah yeah and it's uh it's crazy to think that some of these nuggets uh are actually something that one of the best players in the plo heads up streets found very useful so now you're releasing it as a book and uh you know basically you make our games uh tougher so thanks uh thank I'm trying you. to put you out of a job <laughs> yeah pretty much so well done well done but i still admire the way you present this information and you know skimming through through some of the chapters that caught my attention immediately i i, I felt like the way you approach the studies um, and learning process and understanding uh, the data is very similar to that uh, which I use myself as well. And we we came to the same conclusions in, in several situations. And it's so well structured that basically by by grasping those uh, first principles that you're talking in in the, in the first part of the book. Um, especially like the parts about uh, stack to pot ratio and what you just described that, you know, you, you came to realization that, well, at 16 SPR, one thing happens, it's not true at six SPR. Um, and it's such a universal rule, which then going deeper into some more specific spots, it gives you like this light bulb aha moment, you can connect that information to other findings that you, that you see in the solves. And it's just such a, such a useful way, such a useful approach to to studying the game. Um, and speaking of studying the game, what do you think are the most common mistakes that people do or inefficiencies that people uh, make in their own study process? I see a lot of people, and I think this applies universally, not just to poker, they so there's obvious there are a few different groups of people who want to learn a skill there's the people who think that it's going to happen magically they just like sleep on the book and they hope that by the next morning they have it um and then there's the group that really wants to work hard um and that's kind of what i'm gearing this towards they, they work really hard but they don't get the results that they don't get the results per hour that other that some people do. And I think it's because, I mean, it has to be because of the approach that they're taking. But I think the problem with the approach is that a lot of people, they start with fine-grained details, um, like studying very specific spots, and then they try to kind of extrapolate out from those very specific details um, as opposed to getting back to like core truths about the game, starting with big meta concepts and then drilling down. Because once you have, it's it's kind of like building a puzzle where like, okay, you don't try to like look at the piece in a thousand piece puzzle and say, oh, this probably goes like in the fourth row on the third level and then you just put it there and hope that it's right. It's like you build the framework. Um, and so like one of like the most basic poker frameworks that I'm shocked, I actually just had a, a lesson with a couple of like pretty high stakes players today and they didn't realize that, you know, the main objective of 
like opening like an RFI is to win the blinds. It sounds obvious, right? Like, oh, of course, everybody knows you're just trying to win the blinds. Well, to be honest, a lot of people don't. And if you think about that, um, so they're back in Hold'em Manager, they had this little um, no limit Hold'em grid and it would show you how much each hand was worth. And if you looked at it, you would see that there's only like three hands on there, maybe aces, kings, and queens, maybe ace, king suited, that actually win more than 150 BB per hundred, which would be just winning the blinds. Everything else just wants to win the blinds. And in PLO, the same is going to be true. It's like even crappy aces are just going to hope to win the blinds. It's it's all, It's going to have to be like ace, ace, uh, seven, eight double suited in order to like want to get called. Um, and so just starting with that concept, there's some amazing realizations that you can have about like, oh, if everybody's calling too much in six max, I, I don't get to open very much under the gun because the objective of opening a lot of these hands is to win the blinds and I'm not. Therefore, I shouldn't be playing so many, I shouldn't be playing the GTO strategy, which everyone likes to memorize. Yeah, and I, I think what you're describing here is um, is a great example of people just taking the information for granted. Oh, the solver mm -hmm. says that's the range. So that's the yeah. optimal range. Under all circumstances, I'm supposed to play this range without questioning well, the simplest question really is, as you said, why are we doing this? Why are we opening? Um, why are we opening to begin with? Like, what's the mm -hmm. point to RFI? Um, yeah, and, and and many situations post-slop is is exactly the same thing. Uh, people look at the data from the solver. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, what I see a lot is also people look at bad data. Yeah. and don't realize that it's bad data and still blindly trust it without realizing that they actually are probably hurting themselves. And mm -hmm. the worst thing, they compound that mistake of looking at the bad data, compounded with believing that they're just supposed to follow uh, the blueprint and yeah. it's going to be the best strategy that they can play without realizing actually why is the solver doing what it's doing? Why is he balancing? Why is it balancing the ranges? Um, and all of the other aspects. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamentally, it's like there, there are these, this confused mindset that I think exists where people see the analysis that's out there and they think that's the end goal. Mm -hmm. um, like the solver output is the end goal. You're trying to reach that. In fact, that's really the starting place for, for the discussion. And then you need to think like, okay, what are the deviations? And if you want to, you can think like, oh, how would, given the inputs that I'm assuming, how would the solver change its strategy? Like I, I regularly see on the run at one forums, for heads up, using heads up as an example, somebody will be like, I'm facing a maniac who's three betting 30%. So I open 90% of hands. Like, okay, why are you doing that? Like, you open 90% of hands in heads up. That's what you do. Like, well, says who? Um, that's not how, that is not the correct adjustment to somebody who's three betting you 30%. But they're just, 
they start with like the end, they think they know the end and they're just like, I'm going to play that way. And it's going to give me the, the biggest win rate that I could possibly have. And it's just not, it's not true. And also people are not using it as a weapon. Like you can do all sorts of creative things, um, give up a little bit of EV or play strategies that are equal in value that are harder for your opponents to, to cope with. And that's something that I think really high stakes players think about, but I think maybe like one tier or two tiers below people are not considering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at the mid stakes or, or, or well, it's small stakes. Definitely. You see the regular players using all the same sizes. Like everybody yeah. plays the same strategy. So, well, well done guys. You, like you, you all have the same blueprint. Now you're playing the same thing. Most of you don't understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing. Why is this bet yeah. size the preferred bet size? Um, and honestly, oftentimes the, the answer to why is this the bet size which is preferred is because the guy who run the sim just chose this bet size. And that's yeah. about it. It's not not like, uh, you know, it is the truly optimal bet size. Yeah. And also, your stack to pot ratio is, might be different. You're not always, like the sim is 100 big blinds, for example. Mm-hmm. But if you have 120 big blinds, it's not an insignificant difference. It's yeah. not an insignificant difference if you have 80 big blinds, right? The SPRs change, the preferred bet size changes. But a lot of people don't even have the slightest clue of where to begin the adjustment because they don't mm-hmm. understand how this SPR actually influences our decision and uh, how do we compose our ranges, which hands um, go into the value, which go into slow play, which go into uh, the bluffs, all right? Mm-hmm. And because um, I, I really liked the part where you explained the stack to put ratio in the book and uh, giving the examples of... Um, which hands you want to bluff with at the lower SPR mm-hmm. or or rather that the very lowest SPR, they're pretty much, well, they're still the weak hands that you're betting, but there's no obvious bluffs. There are no uh, pure, no equity bluffs. Then when SPR is rising a, a bit, then mm-hmm. you start getting the pure, pure bluffs. As it keeps rising, you need more equity with your bluffs. Right? Yeah. And and just the whole composition of the importance of the blockers, especially the blockers to the nuts, when it comes in. And the way you describe it, it's just such an easy way to visualize it, such an easy way to see uh, what's going on, that when you're looking at the sims, you notice these patterns. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just beautiful because that's in my opinion, the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do with the solvers, we're trying to look through as much data as we can to take away the biggest concepts, the biggest takeaways, as as you made the analogy, which is actually a pretty cool analogy of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. just making that frame and then slowly, slowly filling it in. And the more it's filled in, the more things you have already connected, the easier it is to add the extra piece because it, there, there's more... Um, context. There's yeah. more context, exactly, right? 
What were some of the most surprising things uh, from your research for yourself? Um, one of the one of the overarching surprising concepts is um, realizing like how much nuance and how much the game changes when you go from like <laughs> like because I was playing I played some hyper sit and goes as well uh, heads up sit and goes and like realizing how much the game changed from like. 7.5 bbs to 10 bbs to like 12 to 15 um like pre like the pre-flop ranges totally evolved and then that actually the changes in structure and how we play post-flop change more from like 20 to 40 big blinds um than they do from like 100 to 200 like at some point there's like there's a really steep diminishing returns curve where you know 300 bbs deep and 5000 bbs deep is kind of like is not is, is not that different like there's going to be a bigger shift strategically 20 to 40 big blinds deep so just realizing that and like <laughs> realizing that and realizing that i could create these scenarios where none of my opponents like because you can play with a short stack and your opponent is therefore forced to play against that short stack, you can sit down with some incredible players who are really strong at a hundred big blinds, but they're just hopeless at say 40 big blinds. Um, so much so that you can have at least an equal, maybe a higher win rate, depending on how good your hundred big blind game is. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like a, a shocking realization. Um, another thing that I was all I was trying to do is look for ways to study multiple spots at one time. Um, I'm very interested in like meta learning and efficiency, and I think I've I've become interested in it because I've tried to learn things um, like chess. Uh, like when I was younger through just like the pure brute force method. Um, right. Like, yeah, like summer, summer during high school, I'm going to study eight, 10 hours a day. Well, I probably got like two hours of good learning in there and then eight hours of just like wasted time. So I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I want to actually have a life. So there were, what I noticed is if you look at the SPRs, because those patterns repeat, like the strategic goals at each SPR is true, um, regardless of whether it's a deep stack three vet pot or a short stack pot, um, you, can, you can study multiple situations at once. Uh, one of the examples that I gave in the book was when you um, are at 40 big blinds, somebody limps, you isolate out of position, and they call the SPR 6.2. When it's a hundred when you're playing a three bet pot and you're 120 big blinds deep, they raise you three bet, they call SPR 6.2. Well, it turns out that the boards that you connect with are basically the same except for like one small exception the strategy is very similar the range versus range equities are the same and i had this aha moment that like oh i can just kind of study these both simultaneously 
and then recognize, oh, this is one of the differences. And when I'm able to recognize like, oh, this is one of the subtle differences, then it, it really sticks out in my mind. Um, it's easy. It, I've already got the framework. I can plug in those little exceptions. And then I realize, okay, in a single raised pot at 100 big blinds, um, when you check raise and they call and you get to the turn, well, that actually is like, is very similar to playing turns in a three bet pot when you're deep stack. They have the same SPR. They're, the cards that are good for you are actually different, but the fact that they're different allows you to understand how the ranges are different and the objectives are different. So looking for ways to do multiple things at once, um, that was something that I really took away from like writing the book and my teaching method as well. Yeah, interesting. And that aspect which you just described of finding the subtle differences and thus identify, identifying um, what exactly is the influence of the ranges uh, for the specific decision. It's just such a great approach in general because I think one of the problems with learning poker, there is no feedback. Yeah. You are studying something, even in chess, right? When, you, when you're studying in chess, the feedback is pretty much immediate because you can run things through the engine. It's so much easier to, to get the feedback, to get the analysis and to get the yeah. uh, absolute answer, whether you're right or wrong in a specific de- decision because your, your move uh, either, let, let's call it in poker terms, either is plus EV or, or isn't, right? And it's yeah. pretty pretty conclusive nowadays. And that being said, it, it even in chess, it's not always that you should always uh, choose the highest EV play. You should still yeah. follow the patterns that you actually recognize and you can execute yourself because there's no point to follow the solver to a point where you're completely lost and you don't know what to do anymore, right? yeah. which is uh, a trap that even some of the really high-level chess players still fall into. Uh, and poker players are so prone to to fall into this trap by putting in a ton of work, let's say for studying a flop, mm-hmm. but then being completely lost on the turn and completely yeah. lost on the river because some of the lines they haven't even studied, they don't understand the underlying principles. Why did we play on the, on the turn in the first place like that? You know, and to have different ranges for the same spot, so sort of one parameter that that changes and allows you to identify the influence of that one parameter. It serves mm-hmm. you as that some sort of feedback and some sort of um, mechanism to compare and 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 see whether your assumptions are right. Because mm-hmm. one of the ways that I most commonly study with solvers is basically before I look at the data, I make my own assumptions about what am I going to find. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's let's call it a hypothesis, and then I'm trying to either confirm or or deny the hypothesis. Uh, and yep. obviously, it's much easier to do so when you have a controlled piece of piece of data that deviates, and then you can see, okay, how does it influence? Did I actually make a correct assumption or not? Yeah. What are some of the other things that you found 
fascinating, surprising, uh, counterintuitive, perhaps. Um, so one of the <laughs> one of the cool things that I realized is because people weren't adjusting to the stack sizes at all, you could you could build in all of your exploits ahead of time. Um, so I would just partially from experience, but also partially anticipating what are my opponents likely to do. Um, so at say 40 big blinds, I know that they need to, they need to RFI about 45% of the time. Well, I know that most people are not going to do that. They're going to play like just RFI 80%. So then I thought, okay, well, how do you, you obviously exploit this by three betting more, how much more? And then I would like pre-program that, figure out exactly how wide I needed to um, three bet and like pre-program all of my exploits, um, not not in a program, but in my in my brain mm-hmm. um, or in the pre-flop charts that I, I share in the book um, so that you can, you don't even have to think about the what the correct adjustment is because a lot of people will look and they'll say oh i know how to exploit this but they don't know the specifics and they also aren't willing to do the legwork to figure to like actually map it out correctly they know i need to three vet more but they don't it's only a vague idea um and so like mapping that out and also mapping out like what's really fun about heads up is when you're playing people who can adjust to you if you're a good meta thinker you can anticipate how they're going to adjust to your adjustments um which is something i mentioned in the book uh one example is like you face somebody who plays the phil galfon strategy of 2010 which was like raise the top 50%, limp the next 40%. Okay, well, how do you adjust to that? Well, against the bottom 40% limping range, you can isolate like a maniac because they have a bunch of just garbage hands. Well, what's the natural adjustment? People start limping strong hands to limp re-raise you. Well, if you know that they're going to do that and you pre-program the counter exploit, the counter to their counter, which is to realize now their RFI range has gotten weaker because they've removed their nutted hands. Then you start, you just instantly switch when you see the limp re-raised, you instantly switch to the the three bet um, to their RFI and it just freaks people out because it's like you're inside their head. Mm. If you get those like one, if you anticipate their adjustment because uh, if you're playing five ten, they're gonna they're smart enough to adjust for sure. Um, so like pre-programming the counters, uh, that was something that I started thinking about in this in this book. Um, but I guess it was something that I thought about already going back to chess um, years ago, like selecting openings against certain people that I knew would make them uncomfortable or bring out their worst playing qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you something related to that and now I'm blanking out, but um, 
Huh. What was it? It was just sitting sitting there. <laughs> and then you said something about chess. And I, I was like, oh, I, I want to talk about chess now. But I forgot oh, yeah. that, For that sure. thing. Because, well, let's actually talk about uh, chess. And I, I suppose the, the thing that I forgot, the question I forgot is going to pop back into my mind. But um, mm -hmm. how much did your experience of studying chess help you with um, approaching the studies of poker? Um, so I think when I start, I started playing chess when I was like 16 and, um, I think my approach, like I said, was very inefficient because it was the first thing that I ever tried to study like that. So I was just like, consume everything, um, just like be absolutely obsessed with it. And you know, it, it helped me get to a reasonable, like, master level, but not, like, super elite level, for sure. Um, so I came into poker, I think maybe I was 21 or 22, um, already knowing that there was a method in a way to study um, games like this. So I actually never played poker for fun as, like, a hobby or something. I was playing chess. I was teaching chess and making money as like a college kid. I was winning a little bit from local tournaments and like that was enough to survive as like a college kid eating ramen. Um, but it, I guess it informed my approach because I knew that you could have this methodology and that I, and I was aware enough that my methodology in, um, chess was not efficient. So I came into poker with the sole intention of being a professional and making as much money as I could from it. And I immediately um, got what I thought was like a reasonable bankroll, like $1,000, which was probably half of my net worth at the time, um, put it on a poker site and then gave the other half to a coach, um, Andrew Seidman, who wrote Easy Game, um, who was just like the absolute nut coach for no, no limit and coming up through small stakes. And I just took a really methodological approach where I would come to our sessions with probably 10 questions every session. Um, and also look for feedback. He was really good at like constructing quizzes and thinking about how to make adjustments. Um, and so I learned the very early on to think from like a standpoint of, okay, this is probably what we should be doing, but how do we make the adjustment? Um, and I think that's, that helped me progress really quickly. I had already worked with a chess database um, and so poker databases were super natural, um, like sorting and analyzing, um, data. So that, that was super helpful. Um, what, how else did I, did I approach it? Um, I, I think I realized at the time that I had major weaknesses in chess, like the, uh, like tactically, I was much weaker than I was strategically. Um, and 
so recognizing that weakness, like if I wanted to go back now and get really good, I'd know exactly what to go study and what would give me the 80% reward on the 20% that effort I would put in. Um, so I already started approaching poker like that. What is, what is the first basic thing I need to learn in order to um, get a big ROI? I was always thinking about the ROI. Um, a return on my the investment of my time because um, I wanted to, excuse me, get as good as I could as quickly as possible. Um, so I think that was thinking about what is out there that you can study that will get you 80% of the rewards for 20% of the efforts. It's always something I'm thinking about. Um, right now, my big hobby is like lang language learning. And so I'm like working on uh, German and just always thinking like, okay, what, where am I weak and what can I do that's going to give me the biggest bang for my buck um, to, to improve? So that's, I think that process is universal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking about another aspect of learning, which is knowing how to ask the right question yeah right because what you just mentioned of recognizing which are your key weaknesses uh, and then working on them mm -hmm. that's already one question to ask which are my yeah. key weaknesses but the following question is how best to use my time how to maximize my my roi and i feel like a lot of people especially coming into poker and a lot of people who are stuck at mid stakes and low stakes, they struggle with figuring out what are the right questions to ask and what mm -hmm. are the right things to do. Because one of the problems with, which I mentioned earlier, that there is no immediate feedback on your studies of poker. Yeah. It's too easy to fool yourself into thinking that you're actually learning something, creating this mm -hmm. sort of illusion of knowledge where... Yep. If you're like, okay, I'm progressing. I know so much more than I did uh, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. But you can't really evaluate the immediate value of what mm -hmm. you learned. Sure, you know more, but do you know useful things, right? Because you, <laughs> right. you might know a lot of uh, useless stuff or you know... Trivia. Yeah, everyone's yeah. into trivia, really, yeah. When, yeah, exactly. when it comes to poker. Yeah, micromanaging, going too deep into like, okay, on this board, what do I do with uh, top two pair, not flush blocker? And I just sometimes want to say, dude, you have that, that's like 0.2% of your whole range, and you're right. spending two hours on that. Like, really? Where's the benefit? Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's one thing that um, a lot of people sort of fall into the trap of working on the wrong things, working on the wrong questions. And therefore, I want to find out how did you come about your methodology? Because when I look at your book, the way it's structured, the, all of the questions that you're answering in the book, well, first of all, it's clear that, you know, it took you a lot of, a lot of time to figure these things out. But what was the starting point? Because I would imagine that it was like a snowball. You start somewhere and then you start realizing, oh, this is an interesting thing to look at. This is a good question to explore. So what was the starting point for you and 
what were some of the points um, where your awareness of the possibilities of the questions uh, awareness expanded? Yeah, that's a good good question. Um, I mean, it definitely started when I started writing the three bet pot book because so I was transitioning from no limit hold'em to to PLO, and I had the sense that okay, I think I I understand some fundamental things about flops and turns and rivers like in single raise pots. They seemed at least similar enough that I could draw connections. I had a mental map of like, okay, I know on this turn in no limit, I actually want a double barrel for an overbet. Um, so I think in PLO, well, I'm not allowed to overbet. So pot is probably the right size. And it turns out that it is. Um, so I was able to map things there and connect the knowledge that I already had um, but when it came to th like short stacks and like um, three bet pots, I was just absolutely lost. I had like no idea. The approach seemed completely different to no limit hold'em. Um, aces are not that good. I'm like, oh, I have aces. I must win. Um, it's like, no, that's not how PLL works. So it was like, I was just constantly confused and like getting crushed in those spots, I'm like, I just have a black hole where there should be knowledge. Um, how the hell do I approach that? And so what I started doing is I actually, this was even before Munker Solver, I started playing around with Pio Solver in like matching the equities of no limit hold'em hands to what the PLO distribution should look like um, based on like, I think the poker juice ranges. And figuring out like, okay, how do I want to generally approach the spot? And that gave me some insight about like, oh, when we're SPR1 in position, we actually don't want to just shove everything blindly. Actually, we can realize a lot of equity by checking back. So we only really want to shove when we're ahead. Um, so that was kind of like an aha moment um, yeah. And so basically I realized like, okay, these three bet pots, SPRs around four, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to start from an even simpler question. How do you play at SPR one? And then I figured I was able to kind of figure that out actually using Pio solver to study PLO. And then when Munker solver came out, I saw, okay, we have this list of like, 50,000 hands, 100,000 hands. This is like complete nonsense. I don't know how to use this. Um, so then I thought, okay, I'm going to make a visual version of this so that my strongly visual brain can, can understand it. So, I mean, I guess it comes back to knowing how you learn too. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a good auditory learner, much better visual. It's like very strong with like, seeing images and connecting things. So I figured, okay, I need to find a way to put the information into a form that's going to be meaningful for me. And then I start seeing patterns over and over again. And when you see it two, three times, you start to be like, hmm, I wonder if this is telling me something universal. And I'm always searching for those universal things. And then you test it a few more times and you're like, yeah, this is 
this is all this seems to be always true um and then from there you ask why why is this always true um and then start building on on that um and then once you have that as like a fundamental pr- um principle then you can start making adjustments can i tweak this to make that principle not true anymore how much do i have to change the stack depth for the shape of the curve the strategy to change and then you start deriving new principles for each incremental step um so that i think that is basically the entire entire process i took it came it always starts from a place of identifying what you don't know which is a skill I mean, maybe one of the most important skills in learning anything. So you, it's impossible to learn what you already think you know. Um, so just like realizing that there's an empty spot in your brain where there should be knowledge is a good place to start. Yeah, and especially once once you start uh, recognizing more and more of, of those principles, at least for me, uh, now thinking back to my own studies, there was a moment which was uh, a sort of big breakthrough for me when I connected multiple concepts into one. Because uh, mm-hmm. to give you an example, you know, I would uh, I spent a lot of time uh, studying the three bed parts uh, back mm-hmm. in the day and just going through the sims and trying to find the underlying principles and. Mm-hmm. Um, which are the key cards, how to use them, what does it mean for, for the blockers, anti-blockers, all, all that usual stuff, right? And I definitely learned a lot from that tedious work, which was, wasn't mm-hmm. really enjoyable, to be honest, right? Yeah. But, um, and then later on, I, I started learning more about the effects of SPR mm-hmm. and, and how does the SPR influence our general strategy of what changes yeah. in, in the general principle. And, and I already mentioned... Um, that chapter in your book, I think you you describe um, those points beautifully, right? Um, so yeah, I, I at some point I learned more about the SPR, and so for, through that about the uh, sort of the general idea of of building your range, and then those two concepts, two two things that I've learned from, from two different directions, they click together. And then looking mm-hmm. back, going back to those three bed spots and looking at those sims, it's as if you're looking uh, at the sims through a new lens. Because now you have this filtering mechanism of, of seeing the bigger picture and, and a sort of filter of, okay, what am I expecting to see? Mm-hmm. And then it's much easier to see the outliers and realizing, yeah. okay, well, this is actually, this type of hand is not playing the way it is supposed to be playing. So what's going on here? And sometimes the real answer is just, well, it's the solver. So probably it's not very accurate in some situations and we just have to Mm -hmm. accept it. But if you don't have that baseline strategy, which informs you about what to expect, you might actually be fooled into thinking like, oh, well, look, look at this. The solver things, the four of hearts is a uh, card that we always have to check. And it might be just, you know, it's just random. So that's, mm-hmm. it's, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I noticed this. I made a recent video for Run It Once where I was looking at 
um, like multi-way spots um, and just starting with the framework. Like I think a, a lot of people, including myself, because um, I played so much heads up, like I've always felt comfortable in six max and heads up pots, but always felt somewhat lost in multi-way scenarios. So then just coming back to like, okay, what, what boards hit which player? And then, okay, the flop is checked through. So these players have removed the best hands from their, the in-position player has removed the best hands from their range. Now we add another low card to the board. Oh, well, that, that's going to be helpful to the big blind. Just being able to recognize that even before you start studying the strategy, it already informs you a lot about um, how you want to approach the spot. Um, and I think that's, if you start with that, as opposed to like, I'm going to really get into the nitty gritty of this, of building the range, um, like that's a much more efficient way to start. Cause you, you now have a, a skill of detecting which cards are good for which player like that. And that skill already tells you, do I bet a lot or do I bet a little? And if I bet a lot, then I'm going to bet my value hands. I'm going to bet my bluffs. It's already starting to tell you how your strategy should be constructed. Yeah, exactly. And and also, what you just described is a, is a, a sort of an example of figuring things out on the fly. When you mm-hmm. have the first principles, when you have the or already know the components of your decision. You need yeah. to look at the range composition. You, look, you need to look at how the ranges interact with the board. What are the stacked pot ratios? What are the incentives of each player to play their range in that SPR? Uh, what I mean by that is like basically what are they supposed to do with their top of the range on the on the flop? What are they supposed mm-hmm. to be bluffing with? When you understand those principles, figuring things out in the time allowed for you is actually doable. You, yeah. you obviously you're not going to play exactly solver strategy, but honestly, that's not even the goal. Yeah, uh, you're still doing way better than just guessing, and to be honest, you're doing way better than just trying to play from memory of some study work that you did. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that even with my own students, sometimes addressing specific situations. I recognize that I don't know the answer, as mm-hmm. in I don't know what the solver actually says, but I can spend three, five seconds uh, or something like that and come pretty close to to an accurate answer or recognize that, you know what, I, I really don't know. Uh, and so I need to look at that. And I don't know. Yeah. And also, I kind of don't know. I know what I don't know. In that sense, because yeah. I, I'm looking at like, okay, this piece is missing because I'm actually not aware of how is my opponent supposed to have played his top of the range on the flop. So I better mm-hmm. look look into it, right? Which when you have that sort of frame, framework um, working through your decisions in game, mm-hmm. that is this kind of artificial feedback mechanism, at least the feedback on your decision. When you yep. you start recognizing that okay, I don't have enough information about this. I'm not. I don't have high confidence in my uh, assumptions here, because once again, you know, with the solvers, we forgot 
that a lot of what we do is making assumptions mm-hmm. um, and accuracy of your assumptions very much influences your, your win rate. Yeah. Because if you're assuming that your opponent is playing GTO, then by all means, playing GTO yourself, that's the way to go. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure assumption that your opponent is playing GTO is a, is a crappy assumption. It's, it's uh, very unlikely. There's yeah, not, if, not it, many people who who do, especially in PLO. Like I don't, yeah. I don't believe anybody is close enough. There might be some specific, isolated situations where some players are very close to it. Yeah, but um, or at least have the potential to be very close to it because I believe that the the best players still deviate a lot, but they deviate yeah. knowingly. They know. The baseline pretty good, but they make their assumptions based, uh, or they make their adjustments based on specific assumptions that they have. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's probably even more. It's there are more deviations in six max because six max is just such a vast game, um, and like one little tendency change in a multi-way pot could probably throw throw everything off, um, or. I mean, and then just like one little adjustment too, where like, okay, suddenly somebody got stacked for half of their stack last hand. Now they're sitting with, with 45 big blinds. It's like, okay, now it's a completely different game. Um, so you need to be able to have some principles for thinking about that. I imagine that's, that makes six max really challenging. Um, I think to play at a high level, which you, you have more experience with, with that than I do. Mm. And that's also a, an interesting point that you mentioned of um, paying attention to what happened to the other player and mm-hmm. making assumptions of how they're going to react to it, right? Because we oftentimes yeah. forget that we're playing against human and uh, hopefully we're playing against human, right? First of all, fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah, it's but, becoming uh, more of a problem every day. But, well, yeah, still in PLO, I, I believe it. We're doing just fine, but, yeah. you know... Uh, but yeah, we we forget that often, and everybody has their emotions. Everybody has their flaws, and uh, nobody's immune to to getting out of line because something happened, right? Even the mm-hmm. best players, even the ones that seemingly play no different um, after some, you know several super stupid things happened in a row. Yeah. Even they are not immune to deviating a bit. Even they might right. not recognize that. They might not feel emotionally um or they they might not express their emotions, feel the emotions and and that that's why they probably don't notice that they deviate, but they do. And mm-hmm. that's especially true of course in live poker where yeah. you have way fewer hands per hour so yeah. that you have to basically dwell on your uh, right. your your losses a bit longer. And I actually recorded a conversation yesterday with Mason Malmuth and uh, he has mm-hmm. an interesting new book out about how to run a poker room, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, a pretty niche topic, but it's, it's a beautiful book. And I should, I actually think, you know, poker players should read it. Uh, not only the, 
floor managers, the casino owners, et cetera, et cetera. This book is really useful for the poker players because we can influence what happens in, in the poker room. Mm-hmm. And Mason definitely had a lot of good ideas there. But uh, yeah, just that book. First of all, reading his book, I, I recognize just how much I miss life poker. Mm-hmm. Because, well, you know, maybe also because it was taken away from me in a way, as it is from a lot of people uh, yeah. nowadays, obviously due to pandemic. But um, and then today I saw um, Doug Polk issue the challenge to Phil uh, Helmuth. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know if it was today or yesterday he issued it, but anyway, he issued the challenge and basically is inviting uh, Phil to play. Um, 50,000 hands, I believe, uh, heads up, uh, hold them. And I'm thinking, like, the strength of that guy is reading the situation, reading the people, playing with their mind. He can't do it online, or at least he can't do it online. So you're, even though you're saying you're going to play the game that he's currently playing against uh, Negrano, Mm -hmm. it really isn't the same game because... You're yeah. gonna be playing over over uh, over the computer. Well, that's that's not helpful for Phil because uh, no. he he thrives in these situations. And as much as some people think that he is just the worst player of all time, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, you gotta give it to him. The guy has the most bracelets. His his longevity and his passion for poker is is insane, and um, he's entertaining. If anything, mm-hmm. he's he's entertaining. Is he's good for for poker? He's he's good for business. But uh, I just don't see it happening. Like Phil playing online, it's a different game. Well, he probably knows better than to accept that challenge. He'll just won't he just say I'm the greatest ever and then not not play? Isn't that the isn't that the the way to go? Yeah, but you know what I think. It wouldn't be such a bad thing if they move it to a live challenge, because that could be mm-hmm. a scenario where Phil has the ego to to basically say, "Well, all right, Doug, let's go and play in real casino and see what happens." Yeah. And I wish this match is going to happen because obviously Doug is still going to be he's still going to take he's that. He's still going to be a big favorite in the live setting yeah. as well because all the predator ape shit uh, or not the predator ape, ape shit but the apex predator shit yeah or whatever <laughs> predator ape shit that's so. that, that's a very interesting um adjustment uh to that that saying yeah yeah exactly yeah it's i coined the new phrase i think is what it's called yeah malaphorism yeah yeah Definitely feel like I, I I coined the phrase here and <laughs> yeah, my new it'll be my new screen name when I start playing on another site. Write the rape shit. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's fantastic. I think if I write the if I write the poker biography for myself, <laughs> yeah, that's there the title. You go. <laughs> uh, anyway, how did we get to this point? But um, there isn't even alcohol involved. No, no. Maybe residual alcohol from yesterday. (laughs) Maybe that's still present. But um, seriously, though, um, yeah, I I like that you mentioned the fact that, you know, the the emotions of people, well, basically what happens to other players, we need to keep keep an eye out on that. And uh, Mm -hmm. we lost that. A lot of people lost that um, 
recently because of the solvers, because we rely too much on the data. We stop thinking about um, the other aspects of playing poker. And obviously live yeah. players, especially the top live players uh, who do study a lot with the solvers, they don't neglect the psychology at all. Yeah. It's still a big part of the game. And it's it's uh, the dynamics of the game, the, the setting, all still valid and all still very, very important. Yeah. Yeah, I remember one scenario um, where I knew because it was, I think it was like a 20 big blind game, a like six max game. And I knew, okay, because of the structure of my range, I'm supposed to check back um, the flop nuts, which means I am able to polarize on turn and like barrel off. Um, and then I remember like betting turn after the flop check through and then firing river and being like realizing, okay, that was an optimal bluff, except my opponent will never give me credit for slow playing the flop because they don't know what the, the structure of the 20 big blind C bet range actually is supposed to look like. So they don't know that I can have all of this value here. And then like I get tank called by like bottom pair or something like that. And I'm bluffing. Um, like, Oh, well that was, that was stupid. I'm like, that's, that's a great place to, to just like give up with that bluff and how, and show up with the value. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I got trapped into that cause I'm like, Oh, this is, I know the structure of the range looks like this at this SPR, but nobody else did. So it, like, it was a great time to not bluff. Um, but I was still, I was caught in that, that um, I'm going to play like the solver thinking and not adjust properly. Yeah. And you, you were also trapped in uh, assuming that your opponent thinks the same way that you do. Yeah, which is a, a really easy mistake to make. We always assume that, uh, or at least extrapolate on onto others, our knowledge. And and oftentimes, like working with my students, I I see the the thing of let's say we're looking at the solver data for the turn. Yeah. Or let's even just take the flop, right? We're in position, we're on the button, it's a single race pot. Uh, and it's a type of board where the out of position player is supposed to lead with a high frequency. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we know that they're supposed to lead with a high frequency, we assume that they're doing that. So the That's rest of the game plan is accurate because, well, you know, he has this range and uh, hence we see but with this part, we slow play this and we, we do the yada yada. Yeah. But how often it's the case that your opponent doesn't know that he's supposed to lead on that board. Or yeah. maybe he knows but he's not doing it because he knows that you're not going to adjust and you're still going to see but uh, mm -hmm. inadequately. Yeah, but it's obviously so hard to figure these things out. And I mean, the, the meta game and leveling wars, especially in heads-up poker, mm -hmm. are, are just such a big part of the game. And, and that's what makes heads-up um, 
I don't want to say more interesting. It's it's just a different animal to six packs. But there are th- yeah. these aspects of trying to get into your opponent's head and mm-hmm. trying to understand what they're thinking, uh, trying to find the moment when they're going to start making adjustments, mm-hmm. and then making the counter adjustments yourself. It's just sort of such a beautiful part of of the game, which. You don't often see in six max to the same extent. It's it's still there. It's present, but yeah. to a much much smaller degree. Yeah, and I think Zoom has also kind of killed that off to some extent, or made it even harder because now you've got a pool of players and everybody's whizzing around, and you don't have that same like oh you don't see that the guy just got stacked and now is is sitting there stewing and like all of these other things that are really nice, um, aspects. And it was actually something that coming up in, I, because I was, um, I'm from the U S so I, but I, and I started playing poker in like online, maybe 2012, 2013. So I already couldn't play on any of the major sites. So I started playing on Bovada, which was all, um, anonymous. And then my whole way up from like, five cent, 10 cent to 10, 20 was playing anonymous tables to the point where I was playing the highest stakes in, in the room and there were only four tables running. So you realize everybody is four tabling and you're only allowed to have four tables. Everyone's playing the same games. And just if you develop the powers of observation, like I figure a couple of my friends and I were working together and we like figure not working together in the sense that we're like sitting and sharing tables, but we'll like write the bet sizes down and say like, Oh, this guy, this is the, there was one guy who always opened 2.2 big blinds in anonymous 10, 20, um, anonymous games where that was the, where he was the only person opening 2.2 big blinds. I mean, you just instantly knew who he was. We had a profile on him. We even found he would stream his play. We knew who he was in person. That's how much information there is out there. Um, and so, like, I would have um, profiles on all of these players that I would recognize over and over again because they would use similar um, sizing schemes. Um, I remember it was one of the famous live players i forget his name he was like one of the live dgens from poker after dark um had posted something about on two plus two on how do i play on ignition and i like i remember the day he actually started playing because like i recognized all these like really live player qualities and just like like snap targeted him um so it's like even on an anonymous site where there isn't residual HUD data, like if you put in enough work and enough observation, you can pick all sorts of things up like that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people nowadays complain, for example, on GG Poker, you don't really have a HUD. Um, mm-hmm. But for the observant player, that's actually the benefit. That's it that's is. an advantage yeah. because if you do pay attention and if you extrapolate the information, but once again, it comes to you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know how to ask the right questions. You can't obviously, uh, unless you're insane, you can't 
pay attention to every single hand that every yeah. single player at the table is playing, especially if you're multi-tabling. I mean, even live poker, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. My approach in, the li- in live poker is usually I pay attention to the two players to my right and the mm-hmm. one player to the left. Yeah. And that's where my attention basically stops. And obviously, yeah. if there's a uh, the weaker player at the table, then of course yeah. he gets the undivided attention whenever mm-hmm. whenever it's possible. But other than that, uh, I couldn't imagine paying attention to every single hand, never mind every single action. Like sometimes not even paying attention to every single showdown, which is arguably pretty bad because at least you could do that much, but yeah, you only have that much attention and you only have that much energy. And in live poker, obviously, it's difficult. Do you have any advice for people who are playing these anonymous games or you know the GG poker, which is not anonymous, but you don't have the HUD? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I was just thinking, and then actually I want to come back and ask you a question. Um, but I was I was just thinking like party playing. I was playing a lot of um, party heads up when I was in New Zealand, and what I realized is, oh, you don't necessarily you can't have a HUD in game, but there's a lot of creative ways to get data. So what I would do is. I would write down on a notepad, I play X player starting at 10.32 a.m., ending at 11.27 a.m. And then I would only play that player um, or only one stake against that player so that like I could identify, okay, I'm playing 5.10, it's gotta be this guy. And then I would put those hands in a separate database and then at some point you, they wouldn't let you, like what I would do is then I would do that over and over again until I accumulated thousands of hands against that player. But, and I would make like an alias for that player and then you could get all their stats, um, which was totally legal. You were, I was legally downloading the hands through their software and then they wouldn't allow you to make the alias anymore and hold a manager. But then you could just reverse engineer by seeing like, oh, my flop C-bet success is X, therefore the guy's defending X minus one. Um, and then you could very easily figure out how often it, they were taking each action. And then you just write out a notepad file of like, oh, this is the guy's RFI, this is the guy's C-bet. Um, and then you just put that somewhere on your desktop. Um, and obviously they adjust over time, but if you keep accumulating the data and putting it in that separate player X or player Y database, you could get all of the, the data for their play, even on a site that didn't have a HUD. And what the most amazing thing for me is I told a player, one of my students who's playing 2550, this is like, nah, not interested. And I'm like, I don't understand why you wouldn't pay a low stakes player to do this for you. Like I could train, I'm sure I could train a one, two player or a 50 cent dollar player to do this. Um, I'm like, why would you not do that? The same, um, like uh, also people will have the same reaction when I tell them, Oh, you can play 50 big blinds. And suddenly the guy who's a high stakes crusher will have no idea what to do. And they'll be like, nah, not interested. Like, how are you not interested in more money? 
I like, I like money. That's the whole point in playing this game. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I don't know why people don't take low hanging fruit like that. And I think there is a lot of things like that on anonymous tables where it, it hurts mediocre regs, but if you're willing to do the things that I was doing, um, like the creative data analysis, then it actually helps you. Um, but the thing I wanted to, to ask you um, about live poker, and this is a, a skill I do not have, and I would, I'm not sure if I even want it for live poker, but just like a life skill, I'm very good at focusing intent, intensely for like two hours. So heads up is perfect for that because you you get it locked in a battle, you give it your all, and then you're just done. And like, that's your action for the day. Um, I feel like in live poker, you have to find this way to float with like 30% awareness um, or 30% of your mental energy for like six hours and then know how to turn it on at that go to 100% focus for like the one hand that's going to make your whole session. Have you mastered that? Do you do that through meditation? Um, what, yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts on that process. Um, well, I do have thoughts on that process. I, I agree with you that for the most part, you need to be there with like 30% awareness. So basically mostly, 100% for 12 hours. Yeah, I you definitely can't, especially if you're going to play multiple sessions over a week, like, cause the normal um, sort of live poker experience for me at least would be like six days a week of poker and then one day off and repeat yeah. for multiple weeks right so you definitely can't sustain and a day of poker also that's like eight maybe ten hours with the break in between yeah. um, pretty hard to maintain very high levels of focus and i would say unnecessary as well mm. um you have to recognize, because once again, you know, back to the same thing, you need to know which questions to ask and you have to recognize what are the important things. And that's why I do pay attention to as much as I can, especially in the beginning of the session, just to identify whether there's something to be found. I, mm -hmm. I do focus on the two players on my immediate right and the mm -hmm. one player on my immediate left obvious reason is because these are the guys that I'm going to be involved in pots the most, yep. right? Because if they open late position where I'm either on the blind or I'm uh, on the button, yeah. right? So obviously we're going to play a lot of hands together. So it makes sense to pay attention to these guys. Uh, obviously always makes sense to pay attention to the recreational player. Mm -hmm. So I basically choose my spots at the table of, okay, this is a situation which I need to make sure I pay attention. Uh, what did they open? Because obviously if there's a showdown, then you sort of need to wind back the whole hand history in your head. Yeah. What was the action? Um, how did it go? Yeah. Hopefully some timing tells and, and stuff like that, right? right? But for the most part, I'd say... I, I do have very low focus on the game and what's going on, um, mm -hmm. especially uh, in the second part of the session. You know, I'm, I'm much less aware of what, what my opponents uh, are doing. Um, 
And I feel that it's fine. You know, I don't need to always pay attention to everything, but being able to just switch off and enjoy my time at the table um, mm-hmm. just allows me to go for longer periods and switch on when it actually matters, when I'm in the hand, that I'm obviously yeah. always focused, right? And if I'm right. not, well, then it's probably time to take a break, time to go for a walk. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically the way I approach it. And I talked to a lot of people about this topic and um yeah pretty much everybody does it the same the same way mm-hmm. some people do more of they try to maintain very high levels of focus throughout but then they take frequent breaks and and they go yeah. for a walk they go you know walk outside if they can just refresh um but one thing that definitely doesn't help is looking at your phone right because that yeah. that time when you're not really focused that doesn't mean you could can afford to be distracted. Yeah. Because two different things of not focused and distracted. Being distracted at a poker table, I think, is just is just hurting your EV uh, in in many ways. Yeah. Of course, you can be distracted with, let's say, a conversation with somebody. That's that's fine. But mm-hmm. you know, if if you're really like on your phone or something, which so many people are guilty of. Just constantly yeah. on the phone, taking pictures, uh, checking the social Even at, media. Even like a home game, I know that they do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm just somebody invites you to a home game and they're ready to lose like thousands of dollars to you, and you're going to sit there on your tablet. Um, it's like, oh boy, yeah. you know how to not get invited back. <laughs> exactly. Well, first of all, that yeah, the experience for the other players is somewhat not ruined. I mean, but definitely not optimal because you expect to socialize especially as a recreational player you expect to socialize you expect to have fun and there's this guy sitting with headphones and you know googling and fuck you attitude yeah yeah and just swiping left left right right all the time you know and you're like okay that's a fucking douche what is he doing (laughs) so that that happens but um yeah yeah, but coming back to what you were describing uh, with your creative strategies of finding the data um, and people saying no to that because you said people said no to your idea of playing short stack and people said mm-hmm. no to creative um, ways of finding the data. The short stack part, I completely do not understand. Because yeah. like, why would you not do that? And especially like, it doesn't even matter if you want to be a short stack player. If you don't know the short stack strategy, by definition, the other short stacks, they're taking advantage of you. So yeah, at least plug sure. your own leaks. You know, it's, yeah. there's, it's not like a pride thing. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to play short stack. Well, guess what? You will, because whenever somebody <laughs> else is short stack, you're effectively you're short stack, right? You're you're playing 50 big lines if, if somebody is yeah. playing 50 big lines, right? So there is no pride in that. And obviously, we see none of that behavior in um, in the six max environment in the higher stakes. Like everybody mm-hmm. is really aware of how to play any stack depth and completely comfortable playing from whatever, from seven and a half big blinds to 250 big blinds. Yeah. Right, but um, the part about the creative data collection, I personally haven't played much on the anonymous sites, so I didn't have to 
Uh, I never thought of ways of getting information like the way that you described. Um, but I never had to think about it really because I always yeah. had my data available, right? right. But um, to do it yourself, that's just so much work. And I like how you were describing it casually of like, yeah, I did the database and like I did this, did that. Just like, and I'm sitting there thinking like, whoa, it really sounds like <laughs> a lot of work. But obviously yeah. then looking at your book, um, that's that's a lot of work. That's way more work than most people are willing to ever put in. Even if they say, oh, I'm going to be in poker forever and ever. That's my profession of mm -hmm. choice. I'm going to die a poker player, hopefully yeah. old, right? Even those people <laughs> yeah, are... Next are still, week, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that can happen as well. But basically, even some of those people are not willing to put in the amount of work that you're putting into your studies into your mm -hmm. material into what you created here and same applies to that creative data analysis so i can totally see uh, why a lot of people would say nah i'm not gonna do it and obviously you've mentioned a really good point of hiring somebody to do the mundane work for you yeah but um a lot of people are not used to it especially the mid-stakes Mm -hmm. uh, high stakes players, I think, for the most part, are very, very comfortable with uh, delegating as much work as possible because to be consistently at the high stakes, the amount of work that you have to do is insane. So unless you are insane, you're going to be yeah. delegating parts parts of especially the mundane tasks, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of mundane tasks that you need to take care of. Yeah. Um, but the mid-stakes players and the low-stakes players, of course, have this problem with viewing um, some of the expenses for what they are. They're not expenses, they're investments, mm -hmm. right? So in, in this case, hiring somebody to do the data analysis for you, that's an investment into your own win rate, into your, your own development. But, um, you know, some people might just look at it on like, how many dollars per hour? No, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Yeah, it blows my mind, um, especially like, yeah, if you think think about, oh, you have a a win rate of maybe you're making $100 or $150 an hour or something. Um, and yeah, you can just go find somebody who's like pretty decent at poker who would be very willing to accept $15, $20 an hour to do work like that. Um, and it doesn't have to last forever. And just the the EV, it's probably going to increase your win rate from maybe it might increase it, it might immediately increase your win rate enough to pay for it or significantly more. So you might go from a hundred to hundred thirty dollars an hour, um, which is, might in, instantly pay for it. Not to mention it will get you up to higher stakes. Not to mention that all of the money that you're making now gets, you get to invest it and get like 7% return on investment in some um, like uh, passive investing fund. Like I, there's like, there's this, this um, feedback loop that I think I know because you're also interested in business, you're thinking about these things and maybe is this one of the, like we've talked about the core um, first principles, is this like one of the business first principles that you would say, like if you're teaching a business course, um, like 
finding ways to invest um, $20 an hour in order to get $24 an hour back somewhere. Is that a, is that a, a business first principle? Pretty much. Cause that's, that's the whole point of business. You're, you're creating something which yeah. the creative process always costs you something unless you're yeah. basically a self-employed, uh, artisan, you know, creating yeah. something on your own, but for the most part, you're producing with the goal of selling it for a higher price. And production doesn't involve only the the physical aspects of it, right? Same, same with the like a lawyer's office. The the lawyer is charging whatever two hundred bucks an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. They have a lot of interns and whatnot uh, who are getting twenty dollars an hour and and doing the mundane yep. work for it. And eventually, the books balance out. You make a profit, and it's all good. And the same kind of paradox is going to be. It's going to apply to people not willing to invest in the study material, people not willing mm-hmm. in to invest in the solvers, people not willing to invest in uh, uh, in courses, in books. Like I'm sure yeah. there's going to be a lot of people who might uh, listen to this conversation and think, "Well, I guess this book is is really worth it because uh, you know seems like there's a lot of good information there." Uh, seems like, well, at least I am definitely of high opinion of the book. And I, I talked to some other high stakes players who who found it fantastic. And um, so people might say, well, seems like it's great, but it costs a lot. So I'm not going to do it because it's an expense, right? But if you think about it, like how much impact it's going to have on people's win rate, Um. And it's going to have an impact on people's win rate, either positive or negative, because the people who are not going to buy it and still going to be in the same environment where their opponents have it, well, good luck. Yeah. So you basically, you know what you're doing? You're forcing people to study. <laughs> that's, that's, that's beautiful. Forcing pe- poker players to read. Oh, boy. Yeah, that is one. <laughs> Don't like that to do one. that. Yeah. It was definitely not an easy read. Because you put in so much information here that to go through it, like this is not a book you can pick up and uh, before bed, just chapter a day and whatever, and you finish it, uh, you know, dozing off. There's going to be no value in it. This is one of the books where basically, at least my approach was pen and paper, the book, and we're reading a chapter really slowly and reading it over and over again because there's a lot of information. It's just incredible how you packed it all in into one uh, piece of work. And mm-hmm. that, that's, just, that's just great. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and I think what I was also keeping in mind is that a lot of people, even though it's a heads-up PLO book, I think it has a lot of value for six max players Maybe because maybe they want to add heads up into their repertoire or the other thing is like being the guy who can start the table is certainly powerful or the guy who can continue playing when the table ends up breaking um, after at the end of a session. That's powerful. Or the other thing to think about is like even if you make it to the end of a PLO tournament 
and you're probably going to play short stack heads up, the book covers all the stack sizes, including 100 big blinds extensively. But if you like that alone, like getting to the end of a PLO tournament and playing heads up, that alone will pay for the cost of the book because, I mean, your EV is going to skyrocket against somebody who doesn't know how to play um, any stack size heads up PLO um, very well. So that's that's super powerful. But even even if you never played a hand of heads up PLO, the SPR structures and all these these universals apply to to six max. I'm I've very effectively applied them to five card and even six card. They're just like poker truths. Um, and if you if you understand them, then yeah, it's it's really powerful in whatever context you're you're leveraging it in. Mm. Yeah, and it, absolutely. And it's it's definitely true that I didn't find any significant difference to my understanding of SPR in, in six max to what you described in the book for heads up. It's it's definitely yeah. looks like the the poker first principle, just the universal truth. Yeah. For sure. Um, how do you think people should study? Because obviously you do so much studies yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And we discussed that asking the right questions is a first challenge, but also in any endeavor, right? We talked about keeping your focus in the live poker environment, but mm -hmm. keeping your focus and getting the most out of your time in the study process is, is, is also not a trivial task. Yeah. What did you find over time works best for you in terms of structuring your day for studies in mind and structuring your study session? Like, what is the optimal um, approach that works for you? Um, I, I would tend to categorize studying. It's, this is true in poker or anything else. There's different kinds of study. There's um, the really soft focus stuff that we were talking about. Um, so like for me, that was when I was for poker study, that was making these, these charts. They, it's really a lot of data entry going from Munker into Excel. Um, so that I could do at the end of the day when my brain was fried. Um, I'd still get stuff from it, um, but it was kind of like the soft focus type time of the day. Um, if I really wanted to do like hand history review or deep principled work, I would do, try to do that earlier in the day when my, my brain was um, fresher. So doing that kind of categorization, I think is really helpful um, because a lot of people will, they'll say, all right, I'm going to play for five hours and then I'm going to really go deep on this topic. I'm like, no, you're not. You're going to play for five hours. You're going to be fried. You're going to lay down on the couch. You're going to be scrolling on Instagram for for two hours and then you're going to realize you're hungry, you're going to eat and then you're going to go to bed. Um, so, I mean, a lot of that even comes back to this stoic principle of um, memento mori. It's like, remember your time is limited. You're going to die. I mean, it sounds very macabre 
macabre, but it's true. You've got, if you're 30, you've got eight, I think 18,000 days to live roughly. So like you don't want to waste those. So thinking about spending a lot of time thinking about how do you get the, the absolute maximum from the amount of study that you're doing um, is really, yeah, it's the most important thing in, in my, in my eyes. So like, just think about, okay, well, if I've got this many days left to live, um, then I want to, I really want to maximize. And I, it also changes the way that you approach things like, po like poker, because there, I think there's always been two approaches and one approach is like, um, you're the, ma the mass multi-tabler, which is kind of dying off with the small win rate. And, or you can be like the, the guy who's like absolutely crushing it, but you're only going to play one or two tables. Um, and I feel like that approach is always more efficient because you're getting more, your win rate is higher per hand. You don't have to play as many hands. You're just trying to maximize and then you can go do other things in life. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always thinking about structuring when to do what kind of study. Um, like for right now, I'm doing a lot of language study and in the morning I'll do like flashcards or um, like really hardcore grammar or writing um, or like a, a conversation with a co with a teacher. Um, I actually just gave a friend a, um, a chess lesson entirely in German. Um, and after it, my brain is like completely fried. Um, I'm just like drooling on myself, blah, just like not even able to uh, hold a, a cogent conversation in English. But like do that early in the day because there's no chance that I could do it at night. Um, and then at night I would do something like a soft focus. Like I would work on um, something for my poker students, but I would have like a, a language podcast or some uh, TV show in that language on, because um, I know my brain is fried at this point in the day. But yeah, I mean, thinking about that structuring is important. Yeah, and uh, I have pretty much almost exactly the same approach of, of doing the logical and the analytical work um, first time, uh, for, first uh, first thing in the, in the day. And yeah. then occasionally leaving some creative uh, work mm -hmm. later for the day or the mundane. Yeah. Uh, creative also, I find for myself, like towards the end of the day when you're, you're sort of fried and you, you are tired. The creative work is is usually, um, you know, reaping good benefits. Uh, by creative work, I mean perhaps looking at the data, finding patterns, trying to figure out uh, something that requires imagination more so than mm -hmm. uh, the analytical part of it, where you're trying to just basically think through the numbers, think through the um, the hand combinations and such. Yeah, that's true. I also like I'm right right now. I'm I'm not playing much poker because I'm writing a novel. Um, nothing poker related at all. Um, and what I like to do is go for some 
uh, maybe half an hour or an hour walk before. And I used to just like always cram like, okay, if I'm walking anywhere, I've got to have a podcast and I have to be learning. This is so inefficient. Oh my God. Um, but now I'm trying to leave that space open to just like let my brain drift in, in that soft focus that we were talking about in with live poker um, and just like ask myself questions about the plot and what the character's motivations are. How do you move them from point A to point B? And then I typically do that in the, in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, I think what you're saying about creative work, that might be true where I don't need a lot of horsepower, so to speak. Um, but I need my brain to just kind of be floating and unattached and just kind of, um, not, not fully logical. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, I'm doing, that's my approach to that as well. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that you are not listening to podcasts or something educational when you're walking anymore. Cause, uh, me too, <laughs> which yeah. is surprising. I, I always used to like, to me, it was unimaginable to do anything without the podcast. Like you do any errands, you go to the shop, you go do whatever you go for a run, you go for a hike. Must be a podcast if you if yeah. you're going alone. Obviously, I'm not that crazy. Then <laughs> you know, just <laughs> going with other people and <laughs> having <laughs> like, hey, stop with the conversation. I'm I'm trying yeah, to listen here. Point, trying yeah. to listen to to a podcast. But um, I find that recently, maybe as long as a month and a half ago or so, I stopped doing that. I intentionally don't either don't take my headphones anymore, or if I do, then it's just like some music or something to completely switch off. Yeah. Um, I think it first happened because there was a sort of lull in the podcasts. Well, my favorite podcast that I listened to didn't really have any interesting uh, subjects or guests for for yeah. that moment. And so I started going without the podcast. And then I sort of thought, well, you know what? This is actually great because I'm enjoying mm -hmm. this more. Yeah. Um, which is also funny. Like I've, I've noticed in the podcasting world, um, it's sort of like seasonal almost. I don't know if they plan it specifically, but somehow towards the end of the year, you always get the biggest, the most interesting guests, right? On, yeah. on every podcast. And, mm -hmm. uh, and now you're looking like, well, I don't know what's happening. Or maybe I'm just more grumpy in the, <laughs> this part of the year because I don't find things yeah. interesting. But it's definitely, for me, it feels like, you know, there's, a, there's not as much uh, in the podcasting world out there uh, as there is in, let's say, December, November. I guess also like people are trying to sell their stuff more in that festive season. Mm -hmm. So everybody yeah. has a movie to promote, uh, a new song to promote, a book to promote, whatever. Yeah. maybe that also is a factor yeah yeah i was i was talking with a friend who's not a poker player but he's an entrepreneur and like really high performance person and and we were talking about like okay what are the the unifying qualities that the best chess players the best tennis players squat he's really into squash um, like what do all of these guys have? What do the judo, um, like the martial artists, judo masters have in common? 
one of the things that we kind of concluded was the ability to like step away and turn off. Like when you're in the, when you're in the arena, you're all there. And, and then when you're out of the arena, you're all out. And I think that's something that I really struggle with and really hurt my poker career because I would start sleeping bad when I was running bad. I would, and I had this like really bad, um, like cortisol snowball um, that was, that would just roll downhill and it affected my relationships. It affected my health. Um, And like learning the art of completely disconnecting so that you can recover and you you can grow. Um, And I just, I even have had this realization with language learning recently where I would just keep study, study, study and feel like I'm not getting anywhere. And I would never let myself take a day off because like, that's what losers do. (laughs) Don't, don't quit. Um, Don't take a day off because you might suddenly quit the thing you've been working on for a year and a half, which is not true. Um, But now I find that if I do have a day off, I'll notice the next day, suddenly I'll be like 5% better. Like there'll be just like a jump for some reason. Um, Or I'll use a new construction, um, grammatical construction that I couldn't use before. I'm like, oh, okay. My brain is actually working on this stuff when I'm away from it. Um, And I think that's something I just never gave any credit to. And I think it's something that the people who are truly great in their fields are probably doing better than their competitors. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like the, in sports recovery is such a huge thing. Yeah. Uh, And, and uh, in the mental disciplines as well, as, as you said, when you're switching off, it's not like your brain switched off completely. It's still working on stuff and still internalizing, making the connections. And uh, when you need them, they're there. The connections are there and it's easier to, uh, to make the jump and make the leaps in, in your progress. And and speaking of you know the fighters, uh, I always admired the guys who would take a nap before the fight, mm-hmm. and like completely so in control and so able to switch off. Yeah, it, to me it just seems like what a nap before a fight. I sometimes can't fall asleep because I'm thinking about like whatever some some crap, yeah. and then it's just like. Can't fall asleep. I can't switch off my brain. It's just the yeah. thoughts are running. And you have a fight. You might be just really badly hurt. Yeah, and you like decide, well, that was a good life time to death. have a nap. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, oh, I feel like I feel like I could have a nap right now. It's 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 absolutely insane to me. But then you see how many of the really top um performers have that ability. Not necessarily yeah. in a, as, as as extreme as actually taking a nap before a fight but close to it where you know they can be switched off before and they can switch off quickly after which is also important because you know as as you said in poker so many people actually struggle to sleep because they're running bad or or something like that and obviously that's a vicious circle because you struggle to sleep well guess what you're going to be playing worse you're going to be much easier to tilt because yeah. when you're tired, when you're not feeling at your best, 
uh, that one bad beat happens and you're like going, uh, what did I say? Predator ape shit. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. what you're going predator ape shit when, <laughs> when you're out of control. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah, I actually heard an um, interesting, maybe it was from one of Ryan Holiday's books, but he talked about how the very elite Navy SEAL teams, when they would find out that there was a massive attack coming, like in Ramadi or uh, Baghdad, their cortisol levels would actually drop. Everybody else's cortisol levels shoot through the roof. But it was like they were so well prepared. They knew exactly what they were going to do, um, that it was actually calming, like knowing this is coming in half an hour. I mean, they actually would be relaxed. I'm, there was there was probably not time to sleep. Um, they had preparations to make, but it would be the same as as the fighter, where like so damn prepared that that actually my stress levels are dropping, which is like that is a level I've definitely not reached in poker, and I bet that. I bet if you went to somebody who like sauce um, or a player of that caliber, that that might actually be true of them where they're able to kind of drop like that, that stress level. I, I don't know. Maybe. Oh, it's, it's definitely yes. true. Um, I've many times recently talked to people about the fact that poker for us uh, the experienced poker players, it's such a comfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. You know exactly where you're at. You know what's coming. You're well prepared for it. There's, there are no surprises. You, you know your process. You know what you're doing. You know what you're supposed to be doing. It's just so comfortable to be, to be here, right? Yeah. And, and to a lot of poker players, that becomes a comfortable escape from the crap that's happening in their life. You know, that mm-hmm. you might have a fight with your girlfriend. You might have a... You know, whatever, something happened. Uh, somebody cut you off in traffic. Yeah. You go to your poker game and unless you're predator ape shit, you're going to be actually <laughs> relaxing and it's going to be a positive effect on you because uh, you get back to something you're good at and you get back to, to something you feel comfortable in, uh, which is counterintuitive to a lot of people because it would seem like really poker is so much stress uh, yeah. It requires so much energy, so much attention. Uh, yet, not not really. It's it's more comfortable than than dealing with uh, a customer service representative, for example. Or multi right? bureaucracy. Oh, multi bureaucracy! Don't get me started. Yeah, <laughs> for those of uh, obviously the listeners don't know, but basically before we started our call, I probably spent about half an hour. <laughs> Just moaning and complaining to Corey about the bureaucracy of the, of the Maltese, uh, and um, I guess they're not listening to this because they're not <laughs> yeah, on the level to, to, to listen <laughs> to podcasts. But but if they were, uh, it wouldn't make a difference. Even if they wanted to slow the process even more for me, uh, they wouldn't be able to because it's just like they, they would be too slow to slow it down. It's not fucking possible. Anyway, how how did how did you drag me into this? <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew we, we would get like, you back to your predator. I feel like I need to fire up some uh, some tables to to calm down yeah, a bit. To calm down. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny. But um, yeah, so maybe it's the same kind of mechanism that the elite sports people are going through, or 
the Navy SEALs, uh, obviously, you know, the the difference between Navy SEALs and the poker players, that's like a day and night for the most part. Uh, but um, still the principles, the, the chemistry of the body and um, how we respond to things, probably similar. Because I would imagine, and I'm speculating here, I have no idea and I actually haven't heard about um, this anecdote that you just described of their cortisol levels dropping, but maybe it has something to do with certainty yeah because all of a sudden you know um what's coming right there's something Mm -hmm. about the fact when it's so much easier to live when somebody tells you well basically when you don't need to make decisions what am i supposed to be doing right now when you know what you're supposed to be doing right now when you don't have any other options yeah you don't have to stress about that well there's one less thing to think about you don't need to think Mm -hmm. about what am i supposed to be doing yeah Yeah, for sure. And same goes yeah, that, with with studies, right? When when you are approaching the study session and it's a blank page for you, you don't have a plan prepared. Let's say mm-hmm. you didn't plan, well, tomorrow, whatever, 11 in the morning, I'm going to be studying this spot. This is what I'm going to be looking at. If you don't have that, coming into that session, you already have a bit of a stress. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not like expressing itself as like actual stress, I, I would assume for most people, but it is one more thing you have to figure out, one more thing you have to think about. And the yeah. session starts and you start scratching your head and thinking, well, I guess I could do this. I guess I could do that. So taking these uh, decisions out of um, out of the process is, is really important. Um, and having a routine as a poker player is also really important. Knowing what you do before the session, what you do during the session, um, obviously knowing what you do, um, how's your decision-making process like? What yeah. are you doing? Um, what are you thinking through the hand? Because once you have um, a well-defined process that you go through, it's much easier to identify the weaknesses, the things that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the um, American Navy SEAL, a guy named Jocko uh, Wilnick, wrote a book called Discipline Equals Freedom. And he talks about like, you know, as poker players, we it's nice we don't have a boss. Nobody's telling us what to do. And you're like, oh, I have all this freedom. I can do whatever the hell I want. But actually, that's kind of a trap in a lot of ways. And it's actually um, problematic. Um, And if you can create discipline in your life, like I'm always getting up at like six or 6.30, um, always making the same breakfast, always going to the gym, um, always doing whatever kind of preparation, um, that actually gives you more space in your life to make bigger meta decisions. Um, and I think in poker, you're in your decision-making when you have a really solid regimented thought process, it then gives you more space to play around with the meta strategy. It's like, boom, I know my, my thinking process. I know what to do in this spot. Now I have more room to think levels above that and notice that, oh, my opponent acted um, half a second faster this time than he did 
um, earlier, or it's live poker. And he went like, like that, like one of those subtle little ticks. Um, that's not subtle though. The one that's, yeah, I know, I know. I'm trying to, I'm (laughs) emphasizing it for the camera. One of those, those little ones. Imagine if Uh, if that's the subtle, I want to see. That would be be like a tremor. Um, but, uh, something like that you're a, by having the disciplined thought process, you're able to, um, you have more room to think about the, the meta concepts. So yeah, coming back to what you just said about the um, routine and Mm -hmm. for example, in your case, waking up 6.30 every, every morning and, and going through the same kind of routine, I have a, I remember one uh, conversation I had with a close friend of mine who who is really really successful and very productive person, um, mm-hmm. and I once found out that he is having exactly the same breakfast for something like fifteen years or twenty <laughs> years of his life, exactly yeah. the same thing. And uh, to which my reaction was like, "Well, you're a complete uh, crazy town person. This this mm-hmm. is not normal. This is like borderline psycho stuff." Right. And and he was just looked at me as if I'm the weirdo. And he's like, Yeah, but that's one decision I don't have to make. I don't need yeah. to make a decision in the shop of what am I buying for breakfast? Because, yeah. well, that's that's sort I sorted it out 15 years ago, right? Yeah. And and same goes for having the breakfast. So, you know, and I've heard from a lot of people the anecdotal experience of especially the people who follow the minimalist movement, sort of when yeah. So basically, they own, let's say, 12 T-shirts, and they're all the same color. Well, that's one decision you don't have to make. Which T-shirt? What am I wearing today? Well, you know what you're wearing today. You only have basically one item, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I have. Uh, I live in in out of Airbnbs, just like traveling to different places. I literally have a book bag and one small roller bag. That is everything that I I own. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, you know exactly what I'm I'm referring yeah. to, and it seems like these things are so small that no way they have a real impact, but they mm-hmm. really do because that frees you up to do something more meaningful and and frees you up from having to make these multiple micro decisions, which yeah. fatigue us in the end of the day, right? If if everything like imagine if your day started with Oh man, should I brush my teeth? Should I brush my teeth now, or should I uh, drink my water first? Then I brush. With, like, what's going on here? Like, imagine if your day starts like that, and then you have yeah. thousands more decisions of that sort to make throughout the day. Which shoe right. do I put in first? Uh, do I shoe tie the shoelaces first, or do I put two shoes on, then tie the shoelaces? Like, you know, th- th- mundane things like this, which we. Mm-hmm are doing whatever we're, whatever the habit is. Yeah. We form the habit at some point and we just follow the habit and it makes our life much easier. Anyway, I wanted to ask you about um, studying the hand histories, right? Because mm-hmm. at some point you, you've you mentioned that that's something you do in the first half of day uh, when you're fresh, when, uh, when you're fully there. Um, I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of malpractices when it comes to 
analyzing and studying your hand histories, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of people just waste time. Like they look through them and if they would really have to describe, okay, what did you learn exactly from this? Uh, specifically, what did you learn that's applicable to more than, than just this unique situation, which you will never see again, or maybe not yeah. for a very long, very long time. Do you have any advice, any guidance for people to improve um, the way they work with the, the hand histories? Um, so probably the first thing is that I'm trying, like uh, when I was doing playing in the anonymous games, I want to try to get my opponent's statistics and mine. So I'm like um, aggregating that data just so I have an overview of what um, what they're actually doing. So I know how I want to to adjust. So that's part of it. Um, yeah, I'm also never just clicking through a batch of hand histories. I think it's completely worthless. Like you, like you were saying, or like, oh, now we're looking at three bet pots. Oh, now we're looking at single raise pots. It's like, I don't know. There's no, there's no connective tissue there. So I will, will tend to break it down based on a line. Like I want to look at how I'm playing the check, check bet line out of position. Um, and I want to look to make sure that I'm value betting thinly enough. Um, I want to look at what my opponent's stats look like there, what my stats look like there. Um, yeah, I'm really focused on, on each individual line so I can look for those patterns over and over again. I don't get anything out of it otherwise. Um, and then I would take like the charts that I've made and see like, how is my play lining up with the optimal play when I want to play balanced and visualizing how would my strategy change um, given the assumptions that I know about my opponent. So I'll take like some of the, the metadata that I got from playing party and make made an alias of like how often are they defending against quarter pot probes in the check check bet line well it turned out the whole population was massively under defending so then i'm like i have a hard time visualizing how my quarter pot block sizing in this line should look against this population data so then i would start locking solver sims and see like okay Optimal is doing this for because this is what the optimal strategy looks like. This is the deviation based on the population data. And why is it deviating like this? Well, it's because we're getting so many overfolds that we're essentially just like are we're auto profiting with bluffs. And then I and then we actually can't value bet as thinly because our value bets are getting too many folds. Um, and so creating, knowing what the optimal looked like, knowing what they were doing, then knowing the correct adjustment in a specific line. Now I'm going to have that awareness every time that a check, check, bet line comes up in this session. Um, I'm going to be like, oh, I know, I know that thing. Um, and then I'll, I'll key into it and I'll start looking for, yeah, 
hints that my opponent is overfolding. Maybe they're hints that they're defending properly. Uh, and I'll really key in on the showdowns um, in, in game. I'll see them like tank call with a hand that I know is like, you call that 100%. Um, and then I'm like, okay, that probably hints that this is the guy that's in the overfolding region. Um, it's hard to do that for every line and like be consciously aware of it. But when you study something specifically and you focus on it for maybe a week or three or four days, then you start to have that mental heuristic like, okay, he's, he's tanking with top pair here. Um, that's not a, a tank. That's a snap call. Um, so like I'm already starting to drive principles even without seeing the data of like, okay, this guy, I'm going to be able to shift from the optimal strategy to the other um, exploitative strategy that I've already studied. Um, so that would be, and then I would check to, to look at hand histories to make sure that I was doing that maybe the next day. That that's a fantastic advice and uh, definitely a good way to look at it, especially batching the hands by line, because yeah. definitely the approach of well, let's review the latest session. Because like, what what's the point of like as if there is an expiration date on your hand histories, right? Yeah. That that's a hand you played, so it's reflective of how you thought at the in that moment. If you went as far as marking it for review, it means that there's some uncertainty there. You're not mm -hmm. sure that you made the correct decisions. So next time you're going to be there, you're still going to be facing the same problem. You might as well badge them and look at all of the hands in the same line. Because mm -hmm. like you described, the taking the next step and actually going from just analyzing the hand and, and analyzing the sims that you already have but then running the sims on top of that with new node locks and new assumptions, mm -hmm. that's really Im important. But if that's your approach for just a scatter of hands with whatever the yeah. latest session, you're not going to run all those sims for... So eventually you're just going to review two hands and that's it. And that's not really the point of it. So definitely great advice there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the... I decide to work on a line for a few days or a week. And then I'm thinking about that in game. I'm, I'm looking for exploits. I'm looking for other ways to adjust it. That's something that you don't get when you just do the broad strokes, study everything approach, because now you're not, your whole life isn't that spot. And you're just like really softly focused on all of these different random spots and you're not getting super deep in that one scenario. Um, and I, if I were to go and like study chess, I would do the same thing, especially for like end games. You would take like uh, specifically a rook, like some rook and pawn end game and just go really deep. And then every game you have that, some kind of situations like that, thinking deeply about how to, um, I mean, in chess, you wouldn't say exploit your opponent, but that's kind of like what 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 you'd be thinking about or like, how do you really play this the, in the most efficient way? And so, like, I find that much like in in chess, actually, it would be nice to be able to batch your games 
And maybe you can do this with the databases by like, oh, all games that went to uh, Rook and Pawn Endgame or all games that you can do it by opening, but it would be nicer to do it by other stages of the, of the game as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. There were some mid- middle game principles as well. Of um, We have a close position. We have a close position with two knights. We have a close position yeah. with bishops. Like, how do we do? How do we free, free it up? Key squares. That that would be that would be indeed really really interesting. Right. You know, I want to underscore something that you said um, about your approach here, um, specifically the idea of when you're working on something, you're you're working in a specific spot, mm-hmm. so your mind is really focused on it, and it's so powerful, really, because as you said, in game you pay more attention and you're more aware of the decisions you're making in that line. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier for you to identify your weaknesses. And that's another thing. Like when you don't have a focus on anything, when every time like within your week, you're like, "Mm, today, I don't know what I'm going to work on. Let's just kind of, well, I guess single race spots is what I'm going to work on. Right. This lack of focus on a specific thing doesn't allow you to go as deep as you could yeah. if you otherwise would just focus and once again it's like what we were talking about before uh, as a poker player you don't have any set routines um, forced on you so everything that you decide to do is well that's your decision and for a lot of people you know this lack of structure is actually hurting them and it, they would really benefit by creating routines creating the plan for exactly what are we studying and um, it's definitely not enough to say well you know what today i'm studying single race pot tomorrow i'm studying uh, turns in a three bet pot uh, then i'm studying rivers on a whatever limp pot mm-hmm. right it's it's just too scattered and, it, and it's not enough you you're not building on the knowledge that you learned yesterday so to say yeah, I have a student who does this extremely well. Um, and luck- luckily enough, he was a coaching for profit student. So like we've done I've, we've done really well working together, but he would just figure out, okay, first we need to fix preflop and then go really deep and really focused on nailing the RFI ranges. Okay, then go really focused on nailing the three bet ranges. And he would spend like a week or so on each and then like progress each step. And it was like, you could just see um, very directly the improvements in his database of like, oh, I'm not doing very well under the gun. And then we, he would just work on it for a week. And now like you see the point where it just like turns up like, oh, it's just, it, it was actually, even even though there's randomness in poker, there is a fee, there is feedback if you focus on something um, long enough. And I feel like um, even I'm guilt I'm guilty of this as well. Where you like you think you've got something and you move on too quick, but what you really need to do is hang out in that that space for another few days or another week and just really um, struggle with it. And then you become an expert at that spot. Um, I think that's that's something that it's 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 easy to overlook. 
Um, and it's easy to get distracted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Corey, I feel like we shared a lot of interesting advice uh, with our listeners, and I really enjoyed the conversation. It's always it's always yes, interesting yeah. to talk to you. Always, I'm getting new ideas, um, um, something that I can apply in my own studies and my own work. So, I definitely found it useful. I, I think your book is great, um, and I highly recommend people checking it out and yeah um what a pleasure man i'm sure we're gonna do another one uh, mm -hmm. perhaps talk about chess <laughs> or something yeah. like that because i feel like it. today we we touched upon so many aspects of learning and um what it means to be an efficient learner and that's one topic that is talked about a lot in the business world even in the chess world Mm -hmm. But in poker, somehow it feels, or maybe I'm unaware of of um, some information out there. But I don't, I don't see a lot of people actually talking at length about the learning process and optimizing yeah. the learning process in in the game, such as poker, because it is different to studying chess. There's less structure. There's less feedback. Um, yeah. And it's clearly different to practicing tennis or or something like that, right? Because mm -hmm. obviously the the feedback there is much much more immediate, and also the environment in which people study is is somewhat different. In in chess, it's unimaginable if you want to reach the top, uh, you're obviously not doing it yourself. You're obviously not yeah. doing it without a coach. You're obviously not doing it by watching uh, videos on uh, or or Twitch streams. Yeah. Right. For sure. So, poker players are are so somewhat in um, in a peculiar situation. Um, and uh, yeah, if you look at the and also, the last point on there, it's actually something funny that I've done, <laughs> which it had uh, interesting unintended consequences. So, since I'd been learning German, I thought, okay, I want to find YouTube channels. And one of the things that I realized was, okay. When, one of the reasons I couldn't learn language in school was not because I was dumb, like every everyone told me, um, or I and I even believed, like, oh, I'm just not capable of doing this. Um, it was because the material was not interesting and not relevant. Like I remember in Spanish learning, like, like all of the zoo animals. I'm like, great, the next time I have a conversation about monkeys and elephants. Um, when I want to go get a coffee in a Spanish-speaking country, this is going to be really useful. Um, so what I did was I actually found a chess um, YouTube, a couple chess YouTubers that are German um, guys speaking exclusively in German. And even though I didn't understand most of what they were saying at the beginning, the added context of them having the chessboard and then like quickly learning what the pieces are called and um, quickly learning the words for um, attack and defense. Like that extra context allowed me to learn really quickly. Um, now to the point where I can just watch and, to and understand like 90, 95% of what they're saying. And then surprisingly, I went and played some online speed games, which I hadn't played for a while. I had just gotten better at chess from <laughs> accidentally. 
Um, like I saw improvement, like my rating from what it used to be online was up two or 300 points higher. So it's like, you can do multiple things at once. Um, and it was like something that was a funny unintended consequence, but if you can find things like that, where you can learn two things simultaneously or key in on a strength that you already have to create another skill, like that's really powerful. Um, and it was unintentional, but I will definitely do it in the future. Um, whatever I'm learning. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic advice. And, uh, what you said about the information not being interesting and seeking out ways of getting the or of making your uh, learning process interesting mm-hmm. even when we don't talk about languages even when we talk about poker i know yeah. from my own experience when i'm studying in a way that feels so tedious to me and yeah even if I see the benefits down the line, as in your example, you know, if I would be in the zoo, would be useful to, to know the names. And, or if yeah. I talk to like a three-year-old, it would be useful to relate to all the things that he knows, which is pretty much just the animals and nothing else. Yeah. Right. But in poker terms, the same thing. Sometimes you do work that is useful. Mm-hmm. But it's just such a grind that it's hard to motivate yourself and push you to to keep doing it. But that's definitely not the only way to learn. Everybody just needs to find a way that they're more comfortable with, more interested in. And eventually what happens, at least in my case, oftentimes what happened if I put that tedious work, the, the type of work that I don't really enjoy, if I put it aside and find a different angle to approach the same uh, topic mm-hmm. um, in a more interesting, more engaging way for me, it's much easier to get back to that tedious way later yeah. on because you already have a basis. So you're at the higher level of understanding what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then you're starting seeing sort of the next level patterns and the next level ideas. And mm-hmm. it becomes much, much uh, more enjoyable and much more efficient. Yeah. So what I'm saying here is is basically pushing through um, with gritted teeth is not always the, the optimal strategy. You just probably need to find a better way, a better approach. Yeah. And that comes back to the other approach that we were saying, which is like, pay somebody else to do the tedious things. Right. If you, if it's an option, um, find some way to pay somebody who, who the, that money's meaningful to them. Well, you're exchanging it. You can go do something. You can go learn something that's more fun and um, will probably stick in your brain better. Um, and then they'll give you the tedious, like, do the tedious analysis and then you'll just reap the benefits from that. Um, that's, that's kind of been my approach now, but yeah, both, I think both things are really effective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. Anyway, Corey, um, let's wrap it up here. I feel like, uh, we could keep going for hours and eventually start playing the speed chess just just for the sake of it which uh, we might anyway after we finish the conversation but uh sounds good 
it was a lot of fun, man. And um, we'll definitely have the links uh, to your work in uh, in the description. People will be able to find it. And um, mm-hmm. whoever is interested in, in looking into it, just check the description. It's all going to be there. And um, yeah, Corey, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great, great fun. Uh, this video brought to you by Predator Ape Shit. <laughs> Predator Ape Shit, yes. <laughs> yes, that's... Uh... We don't know what we're selling, but that's definitely the company's name. Yeah. (laughs) Predator Ape Shit. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.